Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Shut up and sit down. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast brought to you by Tacticam. Tacticam is the simplest way to share your hunt. Whether it's the easy-to-use and budget-friendly Solo all the way up to the latest and greatest 4K 5.0, Tacticam makes it super easy to capture that shot, to review the footage, to, to be able to see that that hit. Um, we just used a couple of them to uh, film some of our turkey hunts that we just did, um, and you can check those videos out on our YouTube. Um, I'm editing them up right now, but, um, man, we're really getting getting into it and you know frank and ernie the the older guys on the podcast you know they were able to film multiple angles from a single hunt just by uh you know using a main camera and using the tacticam 5.0s with the remote so um super easy pretty seamless as, as far as you know one button turns on all the cameras um you're certainly going to want to check that out uh we're going to be giving away one of the Tacticam solos uh, with our our Patreon giveaway this quarter. Um, so we're going to be giving away one of the Tacticam solo packages, um, as well as the Traeger uh, Pro 575 pellet grill. Um, so we're giving away, you know, that's an $800 grill. So that's going to be the main prize for our Patreon giveaway. Uh, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash bullhunter chronicles podcast what that is is that's just kind of like a crowdfunding for the podcast it helps for you know some of this filming equipment the cost of running the podcast all of that but basically what we do is we take that money and we put it right back into the patreon giveaway so um we give away some pretty awesome stuff uh this week uh, uh excuse me uh this quarter there's going to be three different winners one's going to win the 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 traeger uh, one's going to win the Tacticam, and then from our friends over at Basemap, they're giving away one of their Basemap Pro subscriptions as well as a 
a swag pack with a shirt and hat and, and, and all of that. So, you know, three different winners. Uh, I, I'm putting together something for uh, a monthly winner, um, you know, to, I, I want to give back to the patrons we're doing, you know, there's a, a private Facebook group for the patrons and, um, we've been doing some zoom chats and uh, having some guests on there and kind of having an interaction and we're doing that, uh, weekly, uh, along with the podcast. So that's been fun. If, if you're interested in that, like I said, check out our Patreon page or just go to the website, Bullhunter Chronicles podcast and click on the Patreon link. Um, but this podcast today, um, is a great podcast. So we've done, you know, over a hundred podcasts. Now we've talked to, you know, some, some really great hunters, some really great guys, some, you know, guys with great products, all that stuff. You know, this week we're talking to Andy May and I want to talk to him about, uh, the, the efficiency and, um, you know, he's been touted as one of the most efficient, uh, big buck killers that's, that are out there. And, um, you know, extremely humble. He doesn't, pimp any products he, he has no agenda really he doesn't film um you know for money he doesn't put his videos out there um and so we got some really great information about uh putting all the pieces together to kill big deer um but then uh, things kind of took a little shift and uh, his love for archery came out and so we talk a lot about uh, archery uh, target panic, different releases, different sh- uh, ways to execute a shot and a shot process. Um, and this is really, uh, you know, one of the the best episodes that we've done, uh, I believe. So I, I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. Um, and so um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the feedback. Uh, please, you know, if you haven't given us a review on iTunes, that uh, kind of puts us up, uh, as far as getting in front of more people. Um, and, and if that's not your thing, you know, no problem. We just appreciate everybody listening and, you know, just get out there and tell somebody else about the show. Uh, we really do appreciate every single one of the listeners and I know that you guys are going to love this one. Um, so go ahead and check it out. Thanks for listening. Hey everybody, Adam and John back with another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. Um, another one of these Zoom podcasts. John's still on social distancing. We just finished our uh, turkey hunt yesterday where half of it was me outside of the blind. And then finally when we did get it done, it was two guys, two different blinds. And then Frank and Ernie behind us, six feet apart on the ground and had the turkeys run closer than six feet right past them. And uh, I was... Uh, exciting day but another story for another day and uh today's guest that we have on the line um is a guy that i first heard so one of the first podcasts i ever listened to was uh one of the wired to hunt podcasts and uh you know mark kenyon he he does this rut report thing and there was just all these guys that were calling in and um you know as you listen to more podcasts and you get deeper into this um I guess social media, um, you know, there is no, you know, there are hunting magazines and stuff like that, but I think this is the new format for the hunting magazine type stuff. Um, I heard this guy, Andy May, and I was like, who is this guy? And so I listened to him and he's talking about hunting these different things. It was just these little snippets. And then the more people that we talk to, the name keeps popping up, Andy May, Andy May. And actually when I, uh, it's funny because, it took me about two years to get 
uh, Joe Rentmeester on the podcast. And finally, when I did, he says, why are you talking to me? You need to call guys like Andy May. And uh, we finally got to, to meet him at uh, the ATA show. We talked to him a little bit with the, the tethered guys. And then he was at the, the Novi show with us for for one of the days at the the tethered booth we were actually supposed to do this one in person but the the show circuit has been kind of shut down and um that's uh, kind of presented some problems for a, a few different things but um we got andy on the line here fresh back from some some turkey scouting how are you doing today andy i'm doing good guys uh yeah thanks for having me yeah i like i say i, I appreciate it um you've been on a few different podcasts and, you know, you come very highly regarded. Um, but you're one of those guys that, uh, is extremely humble. Um, and, uh, you're probably just like Joe in the sense of why do these guys want to talk to me? Why does the listener want to hear from me? But, um, let's go back to like when you started hunting and, and kind of your style of hunting and how it's progressed over, over the years. Okay. Um, yeah, I got started a little later than, um, most guys do, I guess. I started when I was 18. Um, I didn't have like a, a dad um, that got me into it or anything. I had a couple of cousins that were into hunting. They got into it the year before me. And I, I guess, I guess they were kind of the reason that I took interest in it, but I actually started with archery first before hunting and, um, bought a bow, cheap bear bow and, uh, gotten an archery league and, um, I did quite well. And then, um, everybody at the archery league was like, man, you should bow hunt. You should bow hunt. So that was kind of the transition there. Um, and the first year I hunted was, like I said, I was 18 and, um, this, I started off just kind of, you know, learning on my own. Nobody ever really taught me how to hunt. So I kind of, the more, the more people I meet, like in the hunting circle, I think, uh, in a lot of ways, that was a good thing for me, um, because I didn't learn any like bad habits from my like, grandpa and dad, <laughs> you know, not to say all, uh, dads and grandpas don't hunt. Right. I mean, um, but the, the way I, the way I hunt, I guess, is I, I like to hunt a lot of different areas and I like to go after the more mature deer. Um, and a lot of my friends that hunt, um, kind of hunt the way their dad and, and grandpa, taught them and in a lot of times it's i guess not conducive to you know big buck hunting but um what i did miss out on was that family aspect of hunting and um you know the the deer camps and that kind of thing and and that part i really do regret i wish i would have you know had something like that so um i try to take a few trips uh you know every year with with a buddy or two um you know there's been a few where we've had you know four or five guys and i really enjoy those um but i also do uh i do a lot of solo stuff too i kind of like both i like being on my own and and doing my own thing but then i also like those trips where i have a, a few close friends and uh kind of work together as a team but it kind of started there uh, you know at 18 i had success the first year um you know, I shot a little spike buck and, uh, the second year I shot two does, uh, all with my bow. And then, um, the third year I shot, um, I got invited out to, um, a family farm, a guy I went to high school with and it was on a deer drive and, um, they just basically, they 
put me somewhere just to put me. It wasn't, you know, I don't, I don't think they were expecting me to shoot anything, but um, they kicked a, a, a real big buck out of the a standing cornfield and this buck came racing by me and I put the gun up and I was kind of tracking and leading him and I shot and put him down right there. And, uh, it ended up being the biggest buck they've ever killed in the history of their, you know, 30 year family farm. So it was, it was kind of lucky. Um, but that right there after that buck, I was like kind of hooked on bigger bucks and, that was a nice one. And that was like the third year of hunting. And, and then I never really went backwards. I kind of got obsessed with the, those bigger and older deer and, and that's kind of set me down that path. So let's, uh, that's awesome. I, I haven't heard that story and yeah. let's start right there. Um, so do you think, um, I guess, what did you think after you shot that big deer? Did you think that, you know, that that was a, a pivotal moment in the fact that, that that did send you down that path, obviously. But did you think that it was going to be easy or did you say, did you dive in fully and say, you know, how did, how am I going to do this? How did you, did you make it your life's work to, um, you know, locate big deer? Did you backtrack that and say, where was that deer coming from? Or, or I mean, I guess how, cause everybody who shoots a big buck, they say, well, I want to do that again. But I mean, yeah. you've obviously take it to another level and actually done it so yeah um after i shot that deer i just kind of I, I i didn't want to really shoot anything small and i don't think i ever shot anything you know smaller since then not, not that there's anything wrong with that um but i certainly wasn't uh what i would call a, a, a big buck slayer all of a sudden you know i mean i uh made a ton of mistakes but i did have um I did have that mentality, like, I, I want to learn more about these older deer and where they are and how they travel and, you know, how to get on them, especially with a bow. I was, I was pretty much, I mean, that was one of my only gun hunts, um, you know, up to that point. I was pretty much a, a bow hunter and still am to this day. I do very little gun hunting, but um, I think, you know, I just started hunting and it was, I know in my early years, I put in a lot of time. I mean, I was before marriage, before kids, you know, before all of that. And I was hunting, um, six, seven days a week. Um, and I was scouting even in the off season. I mean, I would scout after, after work, after school. Uh, I mean, at least five days a week. I mean, I was completely obsessed with it. And, um, I think, I was successful on killing nice deer, especially for Michigan, pretty much uh, from that point on. But it was more so out of like persistence. Um, I think just putting in a lot of time, hunting a lot, hunting nearly every day, and um, making a ton of mistakes. And then eventually, I just crossed paths with a good buck and and got it done. Um, but as as I got older. Um, you know, I, I, I guess I had that mentality of, um, wanting to learn and wanted to, wanted to be better. And I started, you know, reading resources and reaching out to people that were more successful than me and to learn like, you know, like a lot of young guys do now, you know, they're, I have people reaching out to me to learn. And that's exactly how I was at the early stages of hunting too. So, um, I totally get where those guys are at. And I, I try to give, um, any input I can when they asked, because there were guys that took the time and, 
um, did that for me, you know, early on. So I kind of sought out those guys um, that seemed to be on the next level of, you know, big buck hunting and, um, you know, reached out to guys like Eberhardt and, you know, Dan Infault and uh, Miles Keller and, um, you know, all those guys and, and every single one of them, you know, took the time to talk to me a little bit and uh, pick their brain. And I took a little bit um, from everybody and then kind of developed my own style, I guess, too. Um, but as I, as I progressed, you know, I became better and I became more efficient and um, it wasn't as much, it wasn't as much about putting um, as much time in the woods as possible to, to kill a big buck. It was more about um, hunting smart and putting in the right time. Um, and then as, you know, as I got older, full-time job and, you know, I had my daughter and married and all that stuff. So things got a lot harder as far as being able to get time out in the woods. But at, at, by, by the time that all happened, I had, I had my daughter, uh, let's see, I'm 42, she's 11. So, I mean, by the time I was 31, um, I mean, I had done nothing but scout and hunt. That was my only thing I did. I mean, I didn't do a golf leagues. I didn't do softball with the guys. Um, I had a fishing boat that collected dust. Um, you know, it was just like I did that every waking moment. So those years, those early years, um, you know, from 18 to 31, those were the years that were pivotal, uh, pivotal in learning and um, becoming a better hunter. And I just put in that time. And I think I had that mentality of, of wanting to learn and be, become better. Um and then, you know, once I had those other responsibilities, the family responsibilities, that time was reduced, um, but I just had to learn how to do it um, uh, in a smarter way, I guess, and a more efficient way and in a way that it wouldn't take away from, you know, time with my daughter or, um, you know, the family. So um, that's kind of how that all progressed. But, you know, one thing that, like I mentioned, is key is just that lot of years of a lot of years and a lot of time of of putting in that obsessive type work and um that really that really paved the way to you know me me being able to spend a little less time in the woods but still be successful and i think when you hear guys like john and dan and miles and all those guys i mean they there was a point in their life where they all devoted everything to hunting, like literally everything. And some of them even put it in front of family. Um, and, you know, I think that that's a, I'm not saying it's recommended or, or a good thing, but I think it's a common theme um, for those guys that seem to be that, 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 uh, that we believe to be on the next level. Um, you'll see that as a common theme or they, they put hunting on a pretty, you know, top tier of their life and, um, and put in a lot of time and, and made a lot of mistakes. So with the mistakes and the time and, and, and those types of things, and you keep talking about, uh, efficiency, um, as you spoke to those next level hunters, as you call them, um, 
what what was the main takeaways that you had from that? Because, you know, what I've learned through this and talking to the same, you know, or similar similar guys and guys like yourself um, is that, you know, you can – one of the problems that I have or have had is, you know, I might say that I have, quote, unquote, time in the woods, but if I keep doing the same things and go into the same areas and, you know – I can spend as much time as I want to doing the wrong things or hunting the wrong sign. Um, and I think maybe that's one of the things that like, like that you're talking about where you didn't develop those bad habits, but from that kind of tipping point, as you were getting those, uh, as you were becoming more efficient, what are some of the key things that, you know, you've, you've taken away from that and, and now tend to focus on? Yeah. Well, one thing with, with talking, um, with those guys, one thing that was very common, um, across all boards was that, um, it's very important. Scouting is very important. Um, and in most cases, um, you know, all those guys, myself included, but all those guys that, you know, really, really seem to have, you know, hunting figured out and are are consistently successful. They scout much more than they actually hunt. Um, and, and that, that certainly rings true, um, with me and my style, um, scouting all the time, um, in season and out of season, every chance I get. Um, and that allows me to have the same or even more success in season, um, with less time. So that's a big one. Um, and then another thing, um, a lot of those guys had is they have, they have like a certain style or a system that really works for them. The one that they had success on early on and they just continued to fine tune it and uh, turn it into um, a really like well-oiled machine that can be repeatable year after year. And there's a lot of similarities between those guys, but um, there's some differences too. Like miles was a, um, he was a a travel corridor hunter. He hunted travel routes and that was his, his thing. And, you know, as we know, in fault, uh, likes to hunt the bedding areas. And then John is, is more of a primary scrape type guy. And I think there's a lot of overlap there um, with those guys, but they all had a, a kind of certain style that they, they ended up kind of zeroing in on. And um, I think w- where I'm a little bit different is that um, I've been, you know, uh, kind of, picking the brains of all these guys for years, but then also trying new things on my own. And I feel like I don't really have a a certain style. I feel like I'm a mix of a lot of styles. Um, and I feel pretty confident in, um, in a lot of styles that I can go out and and be successful. So I, I, I like to think that I'm, you know, um, fairly well-rounded in, uh, in a lot of different styles and a lot of different, um, types of habitat and terrain. I'm not saying I think I'm on uh, like that type of level or anything, but I do feel, uh, very confident going anywhere and, and being able to get on nice deer with, you know, with enough time. So, you know, I think, um, I think that, that, you know, the biggest takeaways besides what I mentioned with those guys, um, for me personally, definitely has been, uh, you know, scouting more than you can hunt uh, or more than you hunt, putting in that time scouting. And, and 
um, meaningful scouting, like go out scouting with a purpose, not just walking through the woods and pointing out a few rubs and scrapes. I mean, there's a lot more to it than that is there's finding, you know, the buck bedding areas for sure. Um, there's finding, uh, the, the travel routes that bucks like to travel, um, those primary scrape areas, you know, the rub lines, the, the transition edges, um, you know, and then you can get into all the different types of habitats and stuff, which, um, where big deer like to, to gravitate towards, you know, and then you got to look into, um, different times of the year and how that stuff all shifts. Um, so, um, you know, putting in that time scouting and meaningful scouting, like go out with a goal in mind every time you go out that you're trying to, you know, maybe you're trying to locate this, this big bucks track, or you're, you're trying to find, um, you know, uh, you've, you've got the bed located, but you need this perfect access or to get to this, this tree that you need to get to. So things like that, every time I go out, it's, um, it's, it's with a purpose. Um, and I really try to dial that in. Um, another thing is, you know, intimate knowledge with your hunting areas. Um, part of the reason I think, um, oh, a huge reason that I'm successful and it appears that I'm efficient is because I'm intimately, I have intimate knowledge of a lot of the areas I hunt and that, that goes, you know, public, private, in-state, out-of-state, you know, I've scouted these, a lot of these places, I mean, literally like at nauseum, I really have. And if a big buck shows up in a lot of these areas, I, I have a really, um, high confidence that I can get him killed. Um, once a big buck is in, in those certain areas. So being really intimate and that takes years, um, of experience. It takes, um, you know, some woodman, woodsmanship and some, uh, and some knowledge, but more of my, um, more of my intimate knowledge has been built through years of experience and observations and, um, writing that stuff down and looking for patterns and seeing what, you know, this deer did from year to year and, where do these, you know, on a certain piece of, of ground, where do the, the big bucks tend to show up and, and that sort of thing. So for me, um, maybe a little bit less knowledge, um, but more, um, being attentive over a span of time of hunting and scouting an area. So I, I get really intimate with those, those areas and I know them really, really well. And if a big buck shows up, I usually know where he's bedding, um, I know where they like to travel. I know where I can get in. I know where I can get out. Um, and a lot of times I know like the exact location where I'd have the best chance of getting them. And I'm not saying that's all the time. Um, but you know, I have a, a quite a, um, a library of these types of areas across several states where I have that confidence and, um, it just takes time. It just takes time and commitment and, um, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, um, learning different areas. Like if you get stuck, um, you know, stuck on like one property or two, you learn that one or two properties, but then you go, you get thrown in a different situation. You feel kind of lost. I have a lot of, I have some friends that, you know, they, they can hunt their home farm. Awesome. But then you get them out of state or you get them in a, a different place and they're kind of lost. And, um, not knocking anybody, um, at all, but for me personally, I want to be effective and dangerous wherever I go. And that's always been a goal of mine. So I've always made it a goal to 
always try hunting new states, new types of habitat, new, uh, new types of terrain, um, and stuff that I wasn't good at and stuff that was challenging for me so that I continued to learn. Um, so I think that's a, you know, a big one too, if that's a goal of any of your listeners to become better hunters, um, you know, to, to challenge yourself, um, in different areas and different types of habitat and hill country and in open, uh, open type grassland out West and, you know, your Midwest farm country and swamps and marshes and all that stuff. Um, if you learn to hunt and navigate all those types of terrain, then you, then you're, you're dangerous wherever you go. And, um, that might not be everybody's goal. Some people just want to kill bucks, kill big bucks. And you can do that, you know, buy your, buy 50 acres and you can put in your food plots and you get some good neighbors and stuff and you can have that success. But that's never been a goal of mine. Um, it's more variety, uh, a variety of terrain and a variety of challenges and, and constantly challenging myself. So going back to those areas that I mentioned where I know intimately well, that, that allows me to be efficient in those areas. But then every year I, add new stuff. I try to go to a new state. I try to hunt a different type of terrain that I don't feel real confident in, in hopes that I do learn more and get and uh, become more effective. So I don't know, I, that's kind of a long winded way to answer that, but that's kind of some of the takeaways I've learned from other people. Some of the takeaways I've learned from myself over the years and just kind of the way I look at things, you know, as far as like how I hunt or, you know, I guess, I guess that kind of explains that a little bit. Okay. So can you guys hear me? Yeah. All right. Um, so when you say you're going to go out, uh, go out of state, go to a new spot, what, what do you, uh, utilize the most? I mean, are you using like Onyx or, uh, you know, those kind of maps or are you actually going out of state and getting boots on the ground multiple yeah. times throughout the year? Um, so. It really depends on, um, it really depends on when I'm planning that out of state hunt. So if it's a rut type hunt, which, um, my first out of state hunts, they were all like kind of during the rut. Um, that's when most guys travel on and that's the way I started. And I would always try to go out there in the spring, like, you know, this time of year, February, March, April, sometime in there, um, before green up so that I could really get a clear picture of um, the deer activity before everything got too thick. You can see those rubs, you can see those scrapes, you can find those beds, you can see the travel routes that were well used. Um, and I would, I would walk all that ground. I'd find the pinch point travel routes. I'd find the doe bedding, buck bedding if it was there. And I would, I would literally try to learn that area as much as possible and even have spots um, and access uh, dialed in so that when I came in during the rut, I had, you know, plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, you know, all these different spots ready to go, different winds. So I would put in a lot of boots of ground, a lot of boots on the ground and a lot of time. But that was when I was doing like one out-of-state rut trip. Um, you know, now I take several out-of-state trips a year. Um, so it's not always it's not always feasible to do that, but if it, if it's a trip during the rut, um, I do my darndest to get down there and scout in the spring. Um, I think that that's a huge, 
a huge advantage if you can do that. Um, now, if you're hunting a state that's, got, you know, is known to have a lot more, you know, older deer, mature deer, um, something like an Iowa or Illinois, you can probably get away without doing that and go there and still have a good hunt. Um, I've done that before. Um, but if you're hunting some of those other states where maybe it's a little trickier to get on one, that's, I think that's an important step. But I've started taking trips um, early season as well for openers. And those um, those types of trips, um, I do more. I try to go a few days before the season starts or depending on how far it is. Um, if it's not too far, if it's something like down to Ohio where I can drive a few times to glass or, or do something like that or run some cameras or something, I would try to do that. Um, if it's something more like Kentucky where I hunt, it's like seven hours away. Um, so I'll go down like two, two or three days before the season and I'll spend those days scouting, uh, more long range type scouting, glassing. Um, it's farm country. I'm looking for bachelor groups of velvet bucks and bean fields. Um, so really going down there in the spring wouldn't tell me much because I'm not going to be hunting down there, um, during the rut. I'm going to be there those first few days of the season. So I'm trying to find, um, the whole goal there is just to try to find a good buck early season on an early season pattern coming into a food source without a care in the world and then slip in and kill them. So those, uh, you know, I've killed a, a few velvet bucks in Kentucky and that's, that's my strategy going to those. And as far as like, um, resources, like mapping resources. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm fanatic about maps. I use Onyx um, a lot for obviously property lines, private and public landowner, you know, lines and that sort of thing. Um, I every time I go out of state, I always try to knock on some doors. I I still try to gain free permission um, all the time. Um, it's becoming obviously a lot harder, um, but you know, when I'm not successful, then I'm usually on, end up on the public, and a lot of times the public's is better than the private. So it just, it just depends. Um, but I also use, uh, the Google earth, uh, the actual internet edition. Um, the image is unbelievable. Um, not the desktop version. You got to go to the, um, the online version. And, um, then I, I also use Caltopo. Um, and that has some like, that has like the best, um, water sources like on topo on topo maps it, it marks every single water source something that on x and even google earth misses so um you know i, I utilize, utilize all three of those a lot um and sometimes i'll even you know if it's a if it's a state where i can't hunt or i can't scout uh prior i'll have some spots mixed out and i'll even um from home kind of scout out my access and market and, uh, you know, and then put it onto my, put it onto my phone or my GPS so that I get there and I not have some plans. So, um, I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, I, I utilize all those resources. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And, and mentioning the, um, the water sources and things like that, um, is there a certain terrain feature that you're looking at? Um, or is the water f feature just for, for access or, I mean, when you're, when you're going and into a place that you haven't set foot on or as you're going down to scout that first time, like, is there a, a certain terrain feature or, or kind of a, a thing where you're, 
you're going to go check those first or is that your preferred area? Um, it, again, it depends on when I'm going down. Um, so I, on, uh, down in Kentucky when there's, um, a year where there's a drought, um, I have some, some water sources, uh, that I know about that are, you know, they enter are like the last to lose all the water. And I mean, it's, it's almost like a slam dunk, um, you know, that they're getting hit heavy. So like on certain years like that, um, you know, those water sources can be huge. And then when it's not a drought, it's not as big of a draw because there's water everywhere and there's water in the vegetation and everything else. So it, it, it really depends on, um, really depends on the time of the year, depends on the conditions. You know, if I'm hunting during the rut, you know, more times than not, I'm focusing on pinch points, um, some sort of terrain, uh, feature, um, whether it be, um, like in farm country where, you know, the, you know, timber or cover kind of pinches down and funnels movement or in hill country where it's more, um, terrain features that, that kind of direct, uh, deer travel, you know, all the stuff that we all know as hunters, I focus on that. But what I do, you know, I guess what I try to do on top of that is I, I try to go in areas where I know there is a big buck in that area or, um, a, a number of, of good deer. So like when I go out of state, um, I don't really have a, um, like a target animal. Um, I do in Ohio because I'm, I'm 10 miles from the border. Um, so I hunt Northern Ohio and, and there's often a few bucks that I'm individual bucks that I'm going after, but anywhere else I go, there's no real, uh, target animal. I'm just going to an area that has a lot more, um, nicer animals than here back home in Michigan. And, I'm just kind of putting myself in those higher percentage spots, but I will gravitate towards more towards that big buck sign, um, you know, or, or really good doe bedding areas. You know, I like to, during the rut, I really like to get in tight to those kind of on the downwind side or travel routes going to and from. So again, um, it, it, a lot of it goes back to areas that I'm familiar with or that I've scouted so much that I, I know, um, that I know hold nice deer and in certain spots where I know if, uh, if I got this wind and I got this good access, if I put in time there, I can get, I can get a good one there. So it just takes a lot of, um, you got, you got to get after it. You got to, you know, go to these places and put in the time. It's, it's hard until you've been at it a long time to go in, um, blind and have success on a short term. Now most guys can go, you know, if they're a, a somewhat knowledgeable hunter can go out of state and give it a week to 10 days and come away with something decent. Um, it's a lot harder to go to those places blind when you have two or three days, four days, which is my average out of state, um, hunt is, is probably three days. I usually have two or two to four days. Um, and then, uh, but I can come back often, like often I'll do that and then I'll, come back home and then I'll, you know, come back another time if I have to. Um, but I, once you have you know put in that time, I guess that's the prerequisite that, that years and years and years of kind of like that obsessive learning, then you, be, you just become better at making the right decision. You become better at going right to, um, areas that look good on the map and kind of Xing out those areas that 
don't look like they have potential. And um, kind of when you come across that right spot, you get that feeling that, you know, this is what I'm looking for. And this, this is a high percentage spot. And, and this is a spot I'm going to put in time or, or maybe you find this other spot that looks good, but you're like, well, there's a hunter over here. And, you know, this maybe, uh, maybe it just doesn't quite have all the, all the features that you, that you might want compared to some of these other spots that you would think are higher percentage. So I, I find those, those spots that I have really high confidence in, um, that I think are really high percentage sits. And those are the ones I focus on. And that's why a lot of times I'm able to, I'm able to tag out in two or three days because I find those spots and I'll, I'll walk by a lot of spots that look good, um, to find those one or two or three great spots. Another thing with that, those two or three day hunts and uh, the success that you have, and um, I believe it was the podcast that you did with Tethered um, at ATA, um, where uh, I think I think Taylor brought it up. He said, you know, you're probably the most efficient hunter, you know, in the country or whatever. Um, yeah. And you know, Taylor likes to talk a lot, but he also kills a lot of deer, and he's he's around yeah. a lot of people, right? So, yeah. um, but what everybody kind of commented on Carl, you know, I know he had mentioned it to you was the ability to make the correct move. It, you know, you, you locate these deer, you have an encounter and you say, this is what I'm going to do tomorrow. That's what the deer is going to do tomorrow. And then, then you kill them. Um, yes. Let's talk a little bit about making those adjustments because um, I feel like that's one of the, the things that, you know, it definitely comes with, with time, but I think that that's probably one of the things where people mess up the most is, uh, especially people that are trying to increase their, um, I don't know, hunting skills or up their hunting games that they, they have this encounter, right? And then they say, well, hopefully tomorrow that doe will bring them on this, over here. Or, you know, they, there's a lot more hope than there is action, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've gotten so many, uh, so much crap about that. I, I called a, uh, a kill this year and, um, there was a, a buck that I had seen do something. Um, he, the, the previous year he had done the same thing during this short window, um, in late October and he had done it the day before and I was moving in for the kill and I, I called it. I, I basically said, yeah, I'm going to kill this buck tonight. I, I really didn't know, but I felt very confident in that. And, and it happened. And now like everybody's just like, uh, going crazy about it. But what they don't know is all the times I've felt that and didn't kill anything. So, I mean, it just, it just happened to work out that time. But, um, you know, that does come with, uh, that comes with experience there's, there's these certain times where, um, I get the, I, I encounter these situations where I feel like I have a really high probability of, of having an encounter with the deer I'm after. And, um, most time, or sometimes it has to do with observing him do something the day before, um, and then having similar conditions the next day, you know, in, in, in most, Almost all of these, except for one situation, which I'll touch on, is outside of the rut. Um, 
there's there's one situation during the rut where um you can you can do that in consecutive days but um these are all situations that kind of like outside of the rut or, or pre-rut like early to late october kind of when deer are doing similar things kind of day to day they do change patterns but it's often you know they're often on these short little patterns and that's what you got to capitalize on um if you can figure them out and if you can learn those and um if you can if you can see a deer doing something um in that time frame and then you got those similar winds similar conditions the next day that gives you an opportunity at least it gives you something to kind of go on and, and um go after him that following day i would feel pretty confident in that um moving in and, and with that said i would call that a, a pretty high percentage sit but then what i've what i've started seeing is that year to year um after you know after i've been like after a certain buck for a couple of years i start to see these patterns that they do in different areas and they start they start to they're over here in this section here um you know in late october and then this buck is over here you know hitting this food source um you know at the beginning of the season and you know and then he disappears and then you know this buck's over here in late october but before that i had no idea where he's at so i start to i start to um see these little patterns that these bucks show me um like on consecutive years or I check, you know, check my cameras or go through my pictures at the end of the year. I was like, man, this buck was all over the place for a three day period, you know? Um, so when there's a, a buck that I'm kind of zeroing in on and I see a pattern like that, then that's when I, I focus my time in that, that single area going after that deer. And, and, um, I wouldn't say the majority of my kills have came from that, but it seems like a lot more have, uh, come lately so that's where that kind of that confidence comes in where okay I'm, I'm diving in after this buck like um a few years ago a big wide nine point he's on the wall over there but um i had hunted him for two years and um i got some nighttime pictures of him very sporadically hardly ever had no idea where he was bedded somewhere off where i couldn't hunt and then um it was that late october like october 24th 25th 26th for three years straight, he showed up in daylight. He was just opening up scrapes in this area. And, um, I, I, I noticed it. I noticed the pattern the first year I hunted him when he was three. Um, I had a visual, I started getting pictures of him, then nothing. Um, and then after the year I, I pulled all my cameras, I ran, I, you know, go through all my cameras and I, I put them into, I organize them in a way that is really easy for me to kind of learn from and, and see those patterns. And then, uh, so the next year I had that in mind, I was like, okay, you know, I, I virtually had no idea where this deer was, um, the beginning of season, even mid October, but that late October timeframe, he became real active. So I was gonna, I was real attentive to that time of year where I was going to start putting in some sits for that, for that deer during that time frame. So the second year, same thing. He showed up he showed up, I'd have to go back and look, but it might've been to the day of like October 24th. And, um, it was unreal. He was there starting to open up all these scrapes again. And I was hunting him in an area where he was opening all these scrapes. And, and this was a, a mistake I made in a, in a learning experience. I was hunting in an area that, um, it was like kind of an opening in the woods where he was making, I mean, uh, 10 or 12 scrapes in this, I don't know, maybe 
acre opening, had some oak trees, some low hanging, low hanging limbs. But I was sitting on the, you know, the downward side of this opening, um, thinking I had the wind perfect. But what was happening is the wind was coming over the top, coming into that opening and vacuum pushing me back. So I sat there, I don't know, two or three times during that time frame for that deer. And, uh, um, there was one hunt where I think he was coming in and he winded me and I, I was throwing milkweed and it's like, I was so frustrated because it just kept blowing the wrong way. The wind was coming out of the North, but then it was blowing my milkweed back to the North instead of the South. Cause it was kind of swirling down through. So after that season, again, I went through my pictures. He was all over the place during that time frame, And, uh, you know, the 24th, 25th, 26th, right in there. They showed up a few sporadic times, like once, like during the rut, and then once again, like during Christmas or something. But it was it was just kind of sporadic. But then, uh, so that that third that that off season before the third year, I said, okay, how can I hunt this buck where I can get a consistent win where I still think he's traveling through? And what happened is it, it took me way to the edge of this property, um, almost like basically to a field edge, which I would no, normally not hunt, but what made this field edge uh, doable was that it was like nearly a mile from the road and um, it had standing corn. But but what was cool about it was there was this, there was this giant point that kind of jutted out in the standing corn field. And I knew from scouting that that was a, a bedding area for a big buck. Years ago, when I scouted that point, there's a giant bed on there. And I always thought that that was one of his beds. So that third year, what I did is I found a spot where he could, you know, if he was bedded in that, um, in that point, which, would, you know, when, when deer are bedded on a point, what they like to do is they like to have the, the wind blowing down through the, the tip of that point. Um, so I waited for a wind that was blowing down the tip of that point. Also, I got in a spot where I could get consistent wind and good access to where I still thought that this deer was traveling kind of to and from that, that area where he liked to open up those scrapes. He was in, a lot of times he was in there like in the morning and a lot of times in the evening. So I backed way off of where all that sign was. And I was in a spot where there was no big buck sign. It was just a, a hunch that he was traveling through this kind of, this little pinch. Um, and I was, you know, a good hundred and, 100 yards, 150 yards from all the sign, the rubs and all those scrapes that you see, you walk up to that. You're like, man, this is the spot, right? This is where I'm going to kill him. Like I couldn't hunt there because the wind wouldn't, you, you just can't do it with that wind. So, um, I backed off and I waited. Um, I didn't hunt that. I didn't hunt that area at all the whole entire season. And I waited, I was going to wait till the October 24th, 25th, 26th, somewhere in there. And then, uh, I remember the 24th was, um, the 24th was kind of warm and, um, I don't remember what the wind was, but I remember it being warm. But then I remember looking at the forecast and the 25th was like this big drop cold front. And I was like, okay, so now I got the time frame of this buck likes to be in here nailed. I think I know where he can travel through or where he's traveling through where I can get a consistent win. And now I got a cold front that's going to get him on his feet even earlier, potentially. So there's a lot of factors in my favor. And I went into that hunt thinking I was going to kill that deer. Um, I didn't know, of course not, but I felt, man, I got a lot of pieces of the puzzle here. 
um, learning, you know, two, two years of, of pictures of sightings and of, of trying to figure this property out. And, uh, I snuck in there on the 25th and as I'm walking in along this field edge, keep in mind it's standing corn. So it's like standing corn and then field, but there was all these scrapes lined up, you know, opened up fresh as I'm walking that edge. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, man, he's in here. And then a few of them even had a big giant, you know, big giant track, like big, big mature buck track. And I was like, he's here. This is him because that's the only, that was the only mature deer in that area. This, this particular area, like this square mile is the most ridiculous hunting pressure I've ever hunted. Um, public, private, does not matter. It's just, it was crazy. So many guys. And I think that deer was fairly well known. Um, a lot of guys were after him. So anyway, I, I walked down that edge and I'm going by these scrapes, but you know, they're, they're field edge scrapes and I've not put too much stock. I want to get to that, that travel corridor, that pinch where I think he, you know, could potentially travel through. I got up there, sit the whole night. And it's funny because I got uh, a lot of this hunt on video and I'm videoing all as after I'm set up all these other hunters, you know, trucks driving in here, guys walking out here and another truck driving in here. You see a guy getting out. And I mean, this deer was surrounded. Um, it was crazy. And uh, anyway, it, it gets to be like kind of prime time. And I'm like glassing that point. I'm not seeing anything. And then all of a sudden I look up and it, I feel like I see like legs. I put my binoculars up and I see legs and I see this kind of big belly, but I can't see his head. And all of a sudden he kind of, he comes out. I see him go into the corn and then he kind of circles back into the woods and um, he's big, 24 inch wide, nine point is really impressive. But he circled back in the woods and he started coming down just the inside of that woods right towards my, my spot. And he came right through that funnel like I predicted and I put the shot on him and he went down. But uh, that was a really cool hunt and probably one of the most I'm proud of because it took a lot of, uh, he outsmarted me for a few years and it took a lot of, um, trial and error and kind of, um, uh, I guess, uh, figuring, you know, mentally figuring things out and I, I made the right call, but that was, um, it was even before that, but that one really kind of solidified. Hey, these, these deer do have these micro patterns during the year. And if you can find, uh, you know, maybe a, a season or, or two consecutive seasons where a buck was in a certain small area or did something, um, two, two years in a row. I even, I even count it. If I see, if I see it one year, then it's on my radar for the next year. But I really started uh, dialing in those, those little small patterns in those areas. And that's when I hunt those particular deer and what that does is it, it just gives me like a what i call just a really high percentage sit because he's already shown um you know where he wants to be and i'm not saying this is 100 percent, but it's it's a it's a a pretty high percent and, and now since i've been talking about it and i you know i'm more attentive and listening and reading there's a lot of guys that have mentioned this in the past like don higgins has mentioned it many times um and I don't, I don't remember that, but it's kind of, I've seen it since I started thinking about this and a couple other guys as well. So, um, it's definitely something to key in on. And that gives you that, um, uh, just a really solid plan to go after a certain deer. It's not just deer. Like, let's say you don't have a necessarily a specific buck that you're going after. You can still see these same patterns and just 
areas in general. So like there's, there's areas that I hunt that, man, they really light up during like, you know, that first, first, second week of November, maybe, maybe that first week of November, you know, there's usually those places are, are, have higher doe numbers. You could hunt there all October and, and not see a mature buck. And it's just doe family groups, a couple little bucks. But then you go in there that first two weeks of November and it's like, boom, you know, you got a really high percentage sit because you have not been in there mucking anything up. You haven't been diverting the doe traffic. They're in there unpressured and you slide in right at prime time, right when your chances are the absolute highest of the season, you slip in and that's when those bucks are moving and that's when they're really cruising in those areas. So I have, I have a number of spots like that where I just, I slip in one time, maybe two times. And it's like a lot of times that, you know, I get it done right, right in those one or two sits. And then, you know, then there's those other spots where they tend to hold a faster group or, or a good buck early in the season, you know, like, um, right, right around the opener. Those are hard, a little bit harder to find, but when you can find those, then you got, you got, you know, a handful of spots that are really high percentage sits early in the season. And the same goes for mid October and late season and everything else. So I try to find, I try to find these types of areas, these little micro patterns of areas and specific deer that kind of take up my whole season. So I'm not saying I have my season scheduled from start to finish, but I have going into a season, I kind of have this, this tentative game plan or like, okay, you know, I'm really going to focus on this particular buck in this area during this time frame, And then, uh, you know, during the rut, I'm probably going to sit this river bottom that's loaded with those. There's always, there's always a few good bucks in the area and I'm going to put in a few all day sits there. And then, oh yeah, you know, the last two years I had this good buck show up late season in this area. So, you know, in December, um, you know, that's where I'm going to, I'm going to spend some time there in December hunting this buck. And then, you know, what I find is like the last several years, like I have this kind of, like I said, like a, almost like a tentative plan of the way the season's going to go. Um, but then I throw in my out of state trips and then I also, sometimes none of this stuff pans out or it's Michigan. So, you know, it seems like at least half the time I get screwed up just by other hunters on, on the areas that I hunt or, um, deer get killed or pressure moves them or, and, you know, so then when that stuff happens, then I'm, I go more into like scouting mode or, um, observation stand mode or like a still hunting mode where I kind of, um, I kind of scout and hunt, you know, on the ground. Um, I'm kind of, I'm hunting, but I'm scouting at the same time. And I'm kind of slipping through the cover, like still hunting. And I'll do that sometimes just to kind of, I'm always trying to get a bead on a good one. I'm never really sitting and waiting and hoping one comes by. Um, uh, unless, unless it's one of those things I mentioned earlier where I have really high confidence. If I don't, if I don't have high confidence, I'm not going to go sit in the stand over here, you know, where I don't know what's there and, uh, and just hope I'm going to, I might go sit over here where I could see a long ways and get 25 feet up and I can glass a whole river bottom or a swamp or something like that. That's something I would do if, if I didn't have anything really going on, but I'm never going to just sit and hope blindly. I'm going to go out with a purpose. And then sometimes I, like I said, I do that, that still hunting kind of slipping through the cover, you know, with my bow, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm scouting, but I'm also kind of moving towards, um, I'm moving towards where I know the deer are, where I have it, uh, 
maybe I have a suspicion that a big buck is bedded and I'm kind of slowly working towards that as, um, depending on the time of year, let's say it's, let's say it's mid October. This is something I might do mid October, but I'm working towards where I think, you know, there might be a good buck bedded and I'm, but I'm scouting, I'm looking for a sign on the way. And if I see something like, man, this is good here, this is torn up and look at, there's a rub line. I feel like I'm getting close to this buck. I might set up right there. And then if I don't feel that, if I don't have that high confidence, I keep going and I keep going. And the whole goal is to see that deer before he sees me. And, um, you know, it's kind of a high risk, high reward type thing, but that's my mentality when I don't have these other things going on. Um, or when some of these other plans that I have get foiled, a deer, a deer gets killed, it gets hit by a car, it gets poached. I mean, it's all happened to me or, or high pressure moves into the area and, and everything's kind of busted up. So it, I'm, I'm always trying to find that high percentage sit. And I hope that kind of all makes sense. I know I rambled there, but it's never, um, it's never just sitting and hoping. Um, it's always, I'm looking for that really, uh, high percentage, high confidence type, um, setup. And if I don't have it planned, if I don't have it, you know, w- with my historical data or, a buck I'm after, then I go out looking for it very aggressively. And, um, I don't know. It just, it, by hunting this way and having that kind of approach, I feel like I'm, I'm in the game constantly. I'm in the game. I'm playing cat and mouse with a buck all season. Um, like I'm always on to something. And if I'm not, I'm doing this aggressive approach to, to get onto something. So I don't know. That's just the way, um, that's just the way I kind of look at it and the way I tackle a season in general. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. Sorry. I talked so long. No, I mean, there's a lot of takeaways from that. Um, just in the sense of, um, not taking everything at, at face value, but saying, okay, why, when, you know, that, that, that tended to be kind of like what I took away from that is the, the, when is why are they there at that time? And over time, over time, over time. And actually the biggest buck that I've ever killed is be a deer that John saw the year before to the day and read an article and said, you need to be in that, that same yeah. stand. There's a good probability. And, uh, you know, we went down there and killed him. but, um, so how are you organizing all of that information? Because, you know, there's a, there's a lot that you had said there, but, you know, there's a lot of guys that, that take notes and, and, you know, but it, that sounds like a, I mean, a library of composition notebooks of, okay, my October, this, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, um, well, I've taken, uh, I've had a hunting journal since 1998. Um, every hunt, um, where I hunted AM or PM, um, what the weather was like, where I sat, what the wind was doing. Um, the only thing I didn't, I put moon phase on there. The only thing I didn't put, which I really regret was, uh, the, um, barometric pressure. Um, but I, I did that. I've done that every single hunt that I've ever done since 1998. So that gives me. 
um, a nice database to go back. There's been many times where I just was like, all right, I just took the whole day and I went back and um, went through and tried to find patterns. And I was like, okay, you know, this was good here this year. You know, this area really, I had some really good sits here. I saw some good deer over here that year. And that was kind of the start of it. And then, I don't know, maybe like eight or nine years ago, what I started doing was I started um, uh, on maps and even on notebook paper, like I started writing down like when I had a sighting of a big buck in an area, you know, or an individual buck. And then, uh, then when I would go through my trail camera data, I would, I would jot that down. So then I started seeing, for instance, that, that buck I was talking about, you know, it was October 24th, the 25th, the 26th, everything fell in that window. Um, and then the, my Michigan buck from this year, same thing. I mean, the last, last year he was three. I shot him here this year at four and it, that late October time frame. that was another one that I killed in late October. That's a great time if you can get on an individual buck. Probably my, that might be my favorite. I think early season is my favorite, but late October, man, if you can get on an individual deer during that time frame, that's a, a great time to get them. But, um, so I, I started writing down like, you know, these dates. Let me see. I don't know if this is it or not, actually. Yeah. Okay. So here's an example. Um, so like 2018, 1022 in the PM, uh, 116 in the AM at the scrape, 1031 AM at the scrape, 113 in the PM, 1112 PM at the scrape, 1121 PM at the scrape, 1124 PM at the scrape. That's one buck, um, that I either had sightings or trail cam pictures. So that's, that's a deer that I'm going after, um, that was from 2018. And then I have just as many data points for 2019. So what I, I write those down and then what I'm trying to do is like, okay, you know, when, when was he in this area the most often or when was he most vulnerable in this area? And I'm looking for those patterns. Um, so I, I start writing them down like that, like that one's about, uh, a, an in particular buck, but I'll do the same thing just in areas. Like there's this, uh, you know, like, there's a swamp and it's a public piece that I hunt and I call it the, um, I won't say the name, but the <laughs> blah, blah, swamp, <laughs> swamp. Uh, but anyway, but I have the same, same type of notes from, uh, from that area. So it's not necessarily an individual buck, but it's, it's when I've had encounters, um, or pictures of, of good deer in that area. Um, so, and, and, and I'm always trying to find these little, these little patterns and these little, um, these clues over time, these like data points. And then, and then it gives me something to kind of focus and capitalize on. And it doesn't always work out and it doesn't always show a pattern, but I mean, like you guys experienced and, and I have many, many times now, you know, bucks really do kind of hone in on certain areas and do the same things from year to year. And sometimes that can change a little bit, especially if like, you know, if they're like a subordinate buck and, a, and the big mature buck in the area gets killed, you know, there can be a little bit of a shift there and some things can change. But, man, I know a lot of what I consider really, really good, knowledgeable hunters, guys that are not, you know, not like uh, 
social media guys or anything. And I've had these conversations and they have seen it too. And it's, it's really, uh, really something that you, you should key in on if, if you're really serious about, uh, going after mature deer, this, this should be a tactic that you, that you pay attention to. Um, you know, if nothing else, it gives you that short window time frame of when you can go after that, that, that certain deer or tackle that certain area. And as we all know, like, I mean, I've wrote about, I've wrote articles about it. I've said it many times, like you're, you're my best chance, your best chance, everybody's best chance at that mature buck is that first time in. And yeah, you still got a, a decent chance in that same spot, you know, maybe the second time if you don't get busted, but I mean, it goes, it drops down dramatically every time you sit in that same area. So, um, that's what I, I kind of zero in on a lot of those things I talked about to, to be more efficient with my time and my sits. And I try to, try to plan a lot of first time sits or, you know, maybe, maybe one, two or three sits in an area. And then if I don't have them killed by then, it's usually, usually the gig is up and I have to come at them from a different angle or a different area or move on to a different area or deer altogether. And so with this, the, the efficiency thing, you, you've talked about uh, a couple of guys with uh, a couple of really opposing styles um, in, you know, they're, they're similar, but, but not, you know, John Eberhart is obviously a saddle hunter, super scent control, Dan Infault, no scent control whatsoever. Um, doesn't really care for saddles. Um, both, both pretty, I, I mean, I don't know. John is, is definitely a killer. Um, and he, he's killed a, a, a ton of deer, but the way that he does it with his uh, scent control, I wouldn't say is the most efficient. Um, I mean, that's a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of energy spent. Um, you know, what are you using in terms of equipment for, um, and how has that evolution gone? Um, um, well, uh, as, as far as like the scent control thing, I'll touch on that. Like I, I'm not going to say, um, you know, what John does, he takes it to another level and, um, I've never taken it to that level. So I'm not even going to give an opinion on if it's effective or not. I've never had that type of discipline in that area to even test it out. Um, but, um, I, I probably fall somewhere in the middle of those guys. You know what I mean? Like I like to shower you know, <laughs> and be clean. Um, I try to take good care of my boots. Um, you know, I don't like getting set on my boots. But I feel like, you know, if a deer gets downwind to me, he's probably going to smell me, um, even though I, I wash my stuff. But I'm not like, I'm not spraying down and I'm not like crazy fanatical about it. There was a point where I was more so. Um, but for the most part, I wash my stuff, keep it in a tote, you know, wash with scent-free soap, um, you know, that sort of thing. But sometimes I leave work and I don't even really get to do that. So I don't really worry about it. Um, all that much. I try to just kind of play the wind and, and, uh, try, try to be smart like that. But I think you can probably reduce your footprint somewhat if you're using the rubber boots and, uh, um, you know, keep those clean and keep them, you know, stored away and, and that sort of thing. You could probably, I think, I, I think that that can probably help you out a little bit. Um, 
as far as like reducing your scent footprint and maybe, maybe beating a deer's nose where you walked a little bit. Um, but that's about as far as I take it. And sometimes I don't even wear my rubber boots. Sometimes I wear my hikers, especially if I'm, if I'm in a state where I'm, you know, hiking back in a mile, you know, I'm, I'm not wearing those rubber boots. So, um, as far as other equipment, um, from very early on, uh, I mean, like my th- third year hunting, fourth year hunting, um, you know, back in, it would have been like 2000, 2001, right in there. I was, believe it or not, really a mobile hunter. Like I said, I never was taught to, uh, I never was taught to like, you know, okay, here's your stand and here's your corn pile. And, you know, we sit here all season. Um, I never really hunted like that. And I, I hung some stands and some, you know, some permanent stands, hang on stands. But um, I had this like cheap, heavy, I don't know, steel lock on or uh, hang on stand. that had the chain and um, that was like my run and gun setup. And I would, from, from that early on, not learning from everybody, anyone else, just kind of what made sense in my head, I would hang it. And I'd hunt and I'd see deer do something. And then I would move the next day over to where I saw the deer do something. And that's just the way I hunted um, from the get go. And I didn't, I mean, at the time, I didn't even know that that was a style or anything. It just made sense to me. Like, okay, if I'm sitting and I see, you know, uh, a nice eight point over there, I'm going to go move over there. And it just, that just made sense. I'm going to go to where I saw those deer, you know, I'm going to try to set up where I saw those deer do what they did. And I never really sat in one spot over and over and over. Just never, that was never my style. Um, so back then with that heavy stand, that chain, it was so noisy, man. I remember I had that whole thing like wrapped in like electrical tape and duct tape. And it was like, every time I'd be hanging it and like, clink, like, damn it. And it would screw me up so many times. I had that whole thing just taped up and it was like, I mean, it had to weigh over 20 pounds. It was crazy. But, um, that's the way it was for the longest time. And then, you know, and then I got into like the lone wolf stands and stuff. And that was huge, you know, huge game changer there for sure. Um, I use that forever. I still, still have a couple and, um, we'll continue to use them when, um, the situation's right for sure. And, uh, right around 2000, um, 2008, 2009 is when I got my first saddle. Um, and I was all about reducing bulk, um, and weight. You know, I was, I was a mobile hunter from the beginning. I liked the idea of being sleek and fast and light and adjusting on the fly. And, um, so I saw the, the advantages, at least in my mind of the saddle, but the saddle I had was big, bulky, heavy thing at the time is, believe it was the only one out there or, or one of maybe two. Um, and I just didn't love it. You know what I mean? I wasn't that comfortable in it, but I toughed it out for a few years and killed some deer out of it. But I slowly started kind of going back to the, the light hang on and sticks. And, um, so I use that for a lot of years. I mean, not knocking it, it gets the job done for sure. And it's all personal preference, but then these new saddle companies started coming out. And of course it, you know, my ears perked up and I, I became interested and tried out, as you guys know, the tethered products and 
man, it was just night and day difference <laughs> from what I started out with. It was just so much lighter. It was more comfortable and it was just so much more well thought out. And it just, it just fits my style really well. Um, because I don't know, I hunt from the ground a lot. I don't know if I'm going to be on the ground. I don't know if I'm going to be 30 foot up in the tree, but I like to have everything I need to be able to do both. I don't like to, I don't like to be hunting on the ground when I have a stand and sticks on my back and I have to stash those somewhere and then, you know, go back and get them or I'm trying to sneak through cover. Like I try, I like to be sleek and fast and light and, uh, just that reduced, um, footprint and that bulk is just to me, um, just fits my style well. And I see why some guys prefer the saddle. I, I think it does have some advantages. I see why some guys choose to stick with a, um, with a hang on. I, I totally get it. It's not for everybody, but it does fit my style, but I definitely, uh, I think there's times for both and I use both last year. I was, I don't think I used to hang on at all. I think I sat in one permanent stand and then I was either on the ground or in the saddle, but, um, the year prior to that, you know, I probably, I was probably like 70% saddle and 30%, you know, out of my lone wolf. Um, so it just, you know, it just depends, but that's as far as equipment goes. I mean, if, if that's kind of what you're wondering, as far as like the, the standard or saddle type setup, that's kind of where I'm at right now with that. What do you use to get of, up the tree? Uh, say what kind of climbing system? Um, so pretty much all last year, um, I used, uh, the Hawk Heliums that I just cut down. I cut them to 22 inches had a, a, a movable aider that I used. So I'd use three or four of those with that movable aider. And I, that could get me, I mean, I hunt, I hunt some really weird setups out of saddle. Like I'll often hunt like, like this high off the ground, <laughs> you know, and just hide behind the tree. Um, but then with that, those same sticks, you know, and that movable aider, I can get to 25 plus. So, um, it, that's usually what I use. It's like the kind of public land legal, uh, set up. If I'm on a spot that's private, I actually prefer not to have the sticks because the sticks are bulky and they're, they're heavy. Um, I prefer just a little pouch of those Cranford screw in steps. I'm, I'm really confident and I'm really fast with those. The downside is they're screw in steps, um, which, you know, I'm not a huge fan of. Um, but on, on private pieces, if I'm running and gunning and I'm trying to go in light with no bulk, that'd probably be my, um, that'd probably be my, my first choice. Cause I can just put them in a little pouch and I can just put it right on the saddle or, or, uh, you know, like on my waist belt or something and go right up the tree. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at right now with, uh, the climbing method, but I'm always, that's something that the wheels are always turning, but I kind of leave that to like Greg and those guys to figure out cool stuff. Cause those guys are way smarter than me. And I just, I just kind of ride their coattails with that, <laughs> that kind of stuff. So do you use a platform? Or yeah, that pre- the Predator platform. Yeah, right. that that thing's awesome. So back when I was started saddle hunting, I just did the ring of steps. And, you know, it's just what I, well, that's what John Eberhardt used. And that's kind of the guy, I guess, that I'm sure it was him. Yeah, it was him that turned me on to saddle hunting in the first place. So um, that's what I used. And. I think that was a big part of, for me personally, why, um, I didn't have a lot of comfort, you know, your, your feet are kind of on the side of the tree, which opens up your thighs, which gave me a lot of hip pinch on the outside of my hips. 
Um, and just that saddle in general kind of wasn't the most comfortable, but, um, that predator platform that for me personally, man, made a big difference in, in comfort. So now I'm able to sit, you know, with that new saddle with the predator platform, I'm able to sit all day and, uh, which is a, a big thing for me. Cause I was out of all those tethered guys. Like I was one of the guys that really struggled to get comfortable. Like everybody else could kind of make anything work. Like I couldn't, I had, I got a really bad back. Um, I got some hip, hip problems and stuff. Um, you know, it's stuff that I keep managed through a lot of stretching and core work and stuff, but, um, you know, sitting all day, it's, it's never a treat for anyone, but for me personally, um, it's kind of grueling pain wise. Um, but this setup has allowed me to do that pretty darn comfortably. And, you know, I don't really, I'm not really suffering through it. You know, it's more of the, the mental suffering than the physical suffering. <laughs> yeah. It sounds just about like John's scenario. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> bad back and bad head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That'll, that'll do it. It makes it tough. Yeah, so sure. So what are you shooting for your uh your bow setup? And I know I I sent it to you and, and you've done some some videos on um uh target panic and and stuff like that. So uh are you uh when you're hunting with your hunting setup, are you using a, a tension release or a hinge or, or, or what are you using for your, your your whole setup? Yeah, so I, I have a couple I have a couple bows. I have uh two Matthews bows, I have a recurve. Um I, I always try to have a, a backup. I, I, I like archery. So as much as I love hunting, I love archery just as much. I love the, um, the tuning and I love the, just trying to improve in archery. Like I, that's kind of like my retreat. Not only do I like shoot to become a better bow hunter, but I just shoot because I love it and I love trying to become a better archer. So I'm really into like, bows and tuning and and trying to find that most forgiving and accurate setup um but right now i have two matthews bows i have a traverse which is a little bit longer axle than axle and i have that vertex which is a little bit shorter one and um they complement each other well because i shoot them both really good one the traverse it just kind of fits my draw length i'm close to a 30 inch draw so you know with that bow i i feel I feel like a sniper. Like that's my out west bow, my whitetail bow, the majority of the time. And then I I go to the verdicts more like, um, like when I went elk hunting and I was up in the mountains and hiking a lot, I used the verdicts a little more maneuverable. But when I was out like in Wyoming chasing antelope or mule deer in Nebraska or Wyoming, then I use that traverse, um, just because I'm just so so accurate with it. Um, so they, they they each have their place, and I don't think any listener needs two bows. It's just me. Um, and I, and I love, I love archery. So that's, that's one of the things that I probably splurge on a little bit more than, uh, maybe I should, or most guys should is, you know, the archery stuff. And I kind of geek out about it. Um, but yeah, so I, I got those two bows. Um, and then I shoot, um, I don't, I, I don't know. Your listeners probably don't know. Um, but I suffered from target panic really bad. Um, many years ago and uh man it was i was uh i was always a really good archer the first year i picked up um a bow i got an archery league down at um shoe sporting goods 
and I won. I got first place, and I got first place every single year I, I went down there. Um, but I was, man, I was a trigger puncher, and whew, I was like, I could barely hold it together, but somehow, you know, I was just, I would find the middle. Um, but, man, I just remember all those years, like, I was really, really fighting that impulse to, you know, do that drive-by shooting and that trigger punching, and I never – I never was in control, even though it appeared so on the scorecard. Like I was never really in control of my shot. And then it really reached a really, um, a really bad level. Um, one year during hunting, I think I missed, I think I missed two big bucks and I wounded another and it was all target panic related. Um, I mean, just literally I couldn't hold the pin on target and I saw Brown and I just hammered the trigger and it was like, my men where I was mentally, you know, I was having anxiety about it and, and it was just making it worse. And then I would shoot more. Like I felt like I just needed to practice, get rid of it or, or, or get past it. And, and I just kept compounding the issue because I didn't really know the proper way to shoot a bow. And I didn't know what an unanticipated release was. And if, unless you're in like the target archery world or 3d world, a lot of hunters don't know that, but, um, learning that uh, I reached out to you know, some archers that were more knowledgeable than me. And again, you know, I saw just like hunting, I sought out those guys that were, you know, the best in the world. And, and uh, some of them reached out to me and helped me through it. And I learned a lot and I learned the proper way to shoot. And I learned to shoot with an unanticipated release to, to beat that target panic. And I put in, months and months of just pounding the target in my living room just you know for a couple hours every night and uh finally beat it and um it not only helped me become a better archer but it really helped my performance on deer and in a high pressure situation i started using um more of a back tension style shot execution um use a thumb thumb trigger at the time when I made the switch, I switched to a hinge. Um, so that's kind of the way I taught myself that unanticipated release. Then I, I ended up going to a thumb trigger. I just liked it a little more for, for hunting purposes. But what that did was um, not only did it make me a better archer, but it, it really, um, man, it really um, made me a more effective and accurate shooter on, on deer, on animals. Um, before, my nerves and my anxiety about the shot, um, you know, I would, I would kind of rush more times than not. I found myself almost not even remembering the shot, um, before all this, like, I just was like, man, I don't know. I don't know what position he was in or I don't, I don't even know where I hit him or man, I just, it happened so fast. I don't even know. Like I, I found myself saying that a lot, but now, now I have a much more calmer approach to shooting at my, my shot execution focuses on the process instead of, you know, what's at stake. So now I'm running through this, the shot execution. And what it does is it gives me this really low kind of anxiety level of shooting and I'm much more accurate and much more forgiving. And I just focus on that execution rather than, you know, that big buck standing 25 yards away. And um, man, it just now I'm not saying I don't ever make a mistake or, or miss or anything, but, um, more times than not, I'm, I'm putting it on the money and, uh, it just feels good because now I know if I can make a good shot here 
um, I can live with whatever happens. Like I did my part. I executed a good shot. I didn't rush it. I waited for a good angle. I executed and more times than not, it works out for me, but you know, they are deer, they are wild animals. They move and, and things happen. Um, but, but before I was screwing up here at the shot execution, I was causing my own failure here. Um, and now it's different. I'm executing a good shot. I'm performing here the way I need to. And then the arrow's going where it needs to be. And, and like I said, more times than not, it's, it's been a, a positive outcome. So, um, I don't know. I don't know. There's probably some listeners out there that might be struggling with target panic. It's super common. A lot of people call it buck fever. Um, you know, that's target panic. Um, yeah. So, you know, definitely, uh, if that's you, if you're listening to this, that sounds familiar. There's, there's some uh, resources out there that uh, you could check out that, that, that could help you. But it, it certainly helped me and it took my confidence in my archery to a whole nother level. Yeah, that's where Adam's at right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's... I told him, because he bought, well, he went, he left the the wrist strap release, and then he, yeah. he ended up buying a, a Carter roll, not, not to it. Yeah. And so, but, I'm like, dude, you, I'm watching you, and your your thumb isn't on the, on the barrel, and you're just punching it. Yeah. You know, I'm like, it's target panic. I'm like, you need to just put that one down for now and get a silver back. Which yeah. is a, an actual back tension. You take your finger off the, you know, the safety, and you pull, and the brakes at a certain poundage. Yep. And it. Trust me, I went through the same thing. I did the same process. I bought a Carter, you know, three finger wise, the wise choice because I couldn't get a knock to it, and it was great until I was I could not keep my thumb from punching it. Yeah. So I wasn't I wasn't executing it correctly. You know. Yeah. So, so that's, that's, that's some good advice. Um, those tension releases are really nice, um, for training yeah. that, that movement and ingraining that kind of pull through motion into your shot. Um, I learned on a hinge, which is a little different a hinge fires on rotation, but same sort of things. Uh, you're, you draw back and you anchor and then you can pull through on a hinge and make it go, but it also goes just kind of, on relaxation. So what I would do is I would just let my pin flow and then just kind of relax my hand and it would go off. And the key to unanticipated releases is that you don't know the split second when it's going to fire. So all you can really focus on is, um, you know, executing your shot and you just kind of, you're staring at the spot. So your, your aiming is kind of subconscious pins kind of moving around, which is fine. Um, yeah. You know, you just let that pin kind of float around and then you just execute the shot, pull, 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 pull until it goes. And if you could just focus on that, um, on that pull through motion or on that execution and just let the pin just stare at the spot you want to hit, and let that pin move around a little bit. That's perfectly normal. Um, what most guys try to do is that pin movement freaks them out and they feel like they need to, you know, their pins on the target and then it's off and then it's on right. and then it's off. So what they try to do is they try to time it as it's passing by. And that's a complete wrong way to shoot. You just let stare at that spot and just let that pin float around. As long as your eyes are on the spot you want to hit, what the pin does is it constantly centers itself. It constantly comes back to center. So you're letting your aiming be subconscious and you're focusing on 
just pull gradual pull build tension build tension build tension build tension boom and the arrow goes right to where your pin was floating so if your pin's floating let's say you're shooting at a circle like this your pin's going here here kind of around the circle maybe just outside of the circle a little bit that's okay because it's always coming back to center it's just something your brain does just like you've heard guys say it but you drive a car you're staring down the road you're not thinking okay left right left you just stare and you it's subconscious you just stay right in the middle same thing with aiming your bow you just let that pin float and floating is good just learn to love that float and accept it and then run that execution separate just pull 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 and slowly build enough tension till it trips that trigger and that's the surprise release and some guys might say well in hunting scenario i don't want to surprise release you know that I, I need it to go now what i feel like and this is just my opinion um i once you ingrain that shot execution of pull 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 i can make it go quick i can make it go slow and my point of impact is impact is the same so if i got a deer you know chasing a doe through and i'm you know man like that get it to stop and i got to make it go pretty quick i just pull a little more aggressively into that wall so i'm pull pull boom and it goes I mean, it's just a, i mean it's a second um right. whereas if you know i'm out like my out west uh well that muley right behind me in wyoming a few years ago that was a 60 60 yard shot really steep angle um he was feeding had no idea i was there i came up over the over the mountain and I drew back and it was one of those things where it's like, I had the time, it's a long shot. I need to make it count. So I just came back to anchor and letting that pin float in his vitals, no rush. And then I kind of let it, I see that pin settle down slightly. And then I just slowly, slowly, gradually build pressure, build pressure, build pressure, boom, sends that arrow and just hits, hits the mark. So there's times where, you know, I run it more kind of slow. A slower execution. There's times where you do got to speed it up, but what you need to do before any of that is possible is you gotta you gotta ingrain that execution into your subconscious. It needs to be automatic, and you have to practice that, you know, hundreds and thousands of reps so that this or this is no longer your your vocabulary. You forget it. You just throw that out the window. You never never use it again so if, if you're struggling with target panic that's how you beat it um if you're not struggling with target panic there's some guys out there um that you know shoot a, a index figure release and they are what what we call a command style shooter they get the pin on the target and then they hit the trigger punch it some guys do that and they never develop target panic but um I think the consensus is from a lot of the archery coaches, the majority of people that do that end up developing some form of target panic. And some people never get over it and they fight it their whole life. And then other guys go kind of the route that we went and have to do something like this to beat it. But this is the correct way. If you, if all of us got an archery coach when we were nine, this is the way they would have taught us to shoot. You know what I mean? Like we went to a, an archery shop and they gave us a bow and they gave us that true fire release and say, put the pin on the target and squeeze the trigger. And that's the way they teach everybody. And unfortunately that, that leads to target panic down the road. Absolutely. Yeah.
Yeah, that, that's John's wheelhouse. So, I mean, before before I knew what pa- Target Panic was, John was giving me talks about Target Panic and saying, no, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do this. And then you get a podcast, you talk to somebody, you talk about Target Panic, then boom, it's like the virus. You got it. And, <laughs> and now... <laughs> And now you know what it is, and now it's like, okay, well, oh, geez, uh, you know, and, and, and you're exactly right that all that anxiety, all that uh, the everything. Last year, the Total Archery Challenge, our listeners have heard this, but it was the worst experience of my life. That last day, I couldn't hit a deer at 30 yards, let alone a bison at 80. It was it was awful and it was yeah. like didn't didn't matter how many arrows it was the drive-by of drive-bys it was just terrible yeah that's a, a bad place to be and i was right there man <laughs> that, that year where it peaked it was that's how i was i couldn't even draw my bow back i mean it, i couldn't even draw my bow back without hitting the, the trigger there didn't even have to be a target down there i just said one like who knows where it went you know what i mean it was just it was that bad it was like crazy so you're doing the right thing. What you what you need to remember though is you got to commit to this 100 percent because if you if you do it 80 percent, but then you 20 percent of the time you still you know command style. It, eventually, that's going to catch you back up to you, and, and you'll kind of fall back into it. So what what I told myself was like, never again am I going to squeeze the trigger. You know, right. for me personally, I, I just was like, never again. I just like. You know, like a, a guy that's going to quit drinking forever, just stop that day and never do it again. And uh, that's that's what I told myself. And since then, I've never done it and I've never had any like setbacks or anything. So uh, um, that resistant release is a really good trainer. And uh, like Mark Kenyon even hunts with his and uh, a couple guys do. Um, and, uh, you know, the hinges are nice, too. I hunt. I spent a whole season hunting with a hinge and. Every animal I shot, I, I think I heart shot every single deer I shot that year um, with that. I mean, it was just, to this day, I still have a hinge, and I, I probably shoot that the best. But what I didn't like um, when with practicing with it, sometimes, like on severe angles, which you often find yourself in a tree stand, um, even though you try to keep that perfect T-form and, and do this, well, what happens is your hand position changes slightly. so. Um, it kind of changed the speed of the hinge a little bit, um, mm-hmm. the way it, the way it executed or the way it fired. So I, I kind of gravitated back towards the, the thumb button for hunting and, but I execute it the same way. I just pull, pull, pull until it goes. So yeah, I think you're like, on the right track. That's why I told Adam, like, dude, you gotta, you know, once in a while he'd have a, a you know, a perfect shot, but that thumb barrel, that barrel's there and it's just like, it's not going because I I went through the same thing. It's, like, it's not going. It's not going. Oh, I got to make it go. Yep. And like put that one away and yep. get the, the you know I told me to get the silverback. I have a hinge too. I shoot the uh, I shoot my hinge ninety nine percent of the time now. Yeah. Unless I'm hunting, then I go back to my thumb trigger. But I did what Omar did and took the barrel off. So now oh. I just have the lever. And I shoot that pretty much like a hinge. I just put my thumb right on the frame. Yep. And then I just rotate through. Yep. And that's how I shot my turkey yesterday. And it was like, I, I was holding on that bird for, it felt like forever. On the video, it's and, a long, long, long and, time. Cause I'm like, well, there was actually three birds in there. And I'm like, this middle one, he's got, a, I got a shot on him. Nope. 
it's the one on the right. And but then when I like at that point where I'm like, I know, all right, I got my shot. So then I just sat there and just let the pin flow. I was just looking right at his neck and just pulled and it, you know, went off. Yeah. Yeah, there's, I mean, you can, you can dive a little deeper into it. There's different, there's actually different ways to kind of execute the shot with the goal in mind of an unanticipated release. There's, you know, there's a relaxation method where you kind of hold more static and then you just start to relax your hand. And what it does is your, your release, you're basically lightening up your hand or relaxing your hand and it's, it's kind of letting the release go forward into your thumb instead of aggressively pulling through but i think as a hunter um you know i don't know i'm no archery coach or expert but i feel like that pull through motion is a little more um maybe a little more uh it gives you a little bit stronger shot um a little more repeatable too like in a hunting situation where you know you got that deer there and you're staring at that spot and you can you're kind of building tension rather than you know in a in a when you got a big buck there, it's kind of hard to release because you got the adrenaline or uh, relax. I mean, so you got adrenaline going and everything else. And I've killed a few deer like that, trying it, just kind of relaxing the hand and, and it, it works, but I keep going back to that more of that, that strong kind of pull through motion. And just, I feel like when I have that more of that, that strong shot, that aggressive uh, kind of expansion that I just tend to shoot a little more consistently and, I don't know. It's, it's worked out well for me. And it seems like guys like Dudley and, and those guys, um, a lot, a lot of his teachings have really, really helped me, uh, you know, four or five years ago when I was kind of learning this new, this new method, but it seems like he kind of feels that same way. So I think you're on the right track. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I need it. Um, but, <laughs> but it, it, I've started using that silver back and, um, it's definitely a, a different thing. And like I had said on a previous podcast, like when I was at ATA, you know, there's no sights or anything on those bows. So it was easy to make a good shot because there was nothing to focus on. There's nothing to be afraid of, I guess, in yeah. in, in that regard. Um, but, you know, put a sight on the bow and then start trying to shoot at spots and stuff like that. And yeah. you, you get that, that drive by, that frustration, and then it, the way that our, you know, we, we didn't shoot in a, we shot in a one arrow league. So it was one 15 minutes later, another one. And, uh, you know, you make a bad shot and now you got 15 minutes to, to dwell on it. And then you get up to the line again and it's like, Oh, and so, um, you know, this is, this is definitely helped. It's a, it's a, it's a whole new world. Cause I can see, with that silver back and that tension, you know, wanting to make it go off. And sometimes I let my thumb off and it goes off. And then other times I do a good job and, and pull through. And yep. then other times, like, it's just not going, it's not going. And it's like, come on. And then that arrow's, you know, yeah. wasted. That, I mean, I've, I've heard that's been, uh, I guess if there has been any criticism with, that type of resistant release. That's kind of what I've heard from a few guys is, you know, depending on how hard you're pulling into the wall initially, when you take right. your finger off that safety, you know, you got to be consistent with that. And sometimes you're in a high pressure situation and you're, you're pulling a little harder than normal. You know, when you get back here, you take your finger off and boom, there it goes. You know, and another thing too, is like that, that, 
that front shoulder, like, you know, me personally, like there's a lot of times, like when I start shooting bad, I'm getting a little weak in this front shoulders. And there's like a little bit of movement there that can totally change the way that that resistant release feels. You know, if it's back a little like this, you know, that's when you're feeling like, oh my gosh, like I'm pulling, 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 pulling. Cause essentially you just kind of like yeah, shifted everything back, you know, or, or maybe you got a real strong front shoulder and you're really kind of holding it out there like this. And, you know, then it's that, that tension, that initial tension is already like past the threshold, you know what I mean? Yeah. You so you really got to get consistent. It, it definitely teaches really good form and getting those shoulders even and, and everything else. But yeah, I, I had the, the Carter revolution for a while and, and I ran into that a little bit. Um, but again, like I, I kind of gravitated back towards the hinge and then, and then the thumb. But I think if you stick with that, if nothing else as a trainer, you know, maybe yeah. you choose not to hunt with it uh, down the road or maybe you do, but, um, if you just kind of pound those, pound those arrows with that, you know, it, it forces you to pull through. That's a great way to just ingrain that, that shot execution. And, and one thing too, I'll mention too, if like, you know, if, you, if you're aiming and your, your pins kind of moving around and like you're starting your process and then you stop and you're starting and then you stop, that's target panic. You know, like every time you're, if you're kind of starting your pull through and then the pins over here and then you're stopping and then it's coming back and then you start pulling and then you stop, that's bad. Like, don't do that. That's, that's target panic right there. Instead, just stare at this spot and kind of almost, you don't even have to really worry about what your pin's doing. It's going to just do this, but it's always going to kind of keep circling back around and you just pull through focus. Your mental, your mental focus should be, you know, say something like, you know, pull, 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 or, you know, something like that, 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 that is giving you uh, the, the focus to just kind of build that tension and pull. I usually go pull, 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 pull until it goes. But that, that pin can move all around. If you're getting really erratic pin movement, that tends to increase anxiety. You know, that can be some, sometimes minimized with like different stabilization and stuff. And that's, that's kind of the stuff that I've toyed around with is different stabilizer weights and, and balancing my bow so that it, it creates more of a slow, calm type pin movement. Um, so that might be something, you know, down the road to look into more if you haven't already that, gives you a little more calmer sight picture then it's easier to just kind of pull 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 if you got a real erratic pin it's like oh my god you know like jesus how am i gonna hit this thing even <laughs> yeah. though if just executed right it'd still go where you want it to go but that erratic pin movement creates anxiety because we feel everybody wants to just hold that pin like boom perfectly still in the middle and it just doesn't happen you know mm -hmm. so that's one of the things with, i just noticed this the other day uh, I built some strings for Adam's bow and got it all tuned up finally. But uh he's shooting the, the diamond deploy the carbon bow and that thing, I mean it's awesome because it's so light, but it's yeah. also it's so light and so small that when I was, you know, tuning it in, that bow is all over the place for me. Yeah. I mean it was a little bit windy that day, so it's like definitely like when you go to an aluminum riser bow or you put some weight on that. Yeah. And, and just from shooting a lot, like I, so I, I, I look at my hunting bow. I, I tackle it like, um, 
like a competitive archer. Like I'm trying to build the most accurate setup and like all this time of year, um, like all spring and summer. I mean, I'm so archery focused. I'm, I'm trying to maximize my forgiveness and my, my accuracy and I'll shoot, you know, I'll do a lot of tuning. I'll do a lot of arrow building and different setups and I'm, testing them against each other to find the most accurate setup so that when I go into hunting season, I'm, I got a really confident setup. And for me personally, from trying a lot of different bows and messing around with different people's bows and tuning different bows, I shoot a heavier bow much better than a light bow. I see the benefits of a light bow, especially like in the mountains out West. Um, you know, maybe even if you're just a, kind of like a 25 yard and in guy or something like that. Um, but just for me personally, I definitely shoot um, a heavier bow a little better. Um, not saying everybody will. Some people use or, or shoot a heavier bow with like high mass weight, and, and what it does is like they're constantly fighting their pins and dropping and dropping and dropping like that. So you know you got to add like counterweight to to help with that. But um, yeah, I don't know. For me personally, I really struggle with a really light bow to get a, a calm sight picture and. And I like a calm sight picture, even though I can still shoot fine with more of an erratic pin. For me personally, it, it, it it's a little tougher to do. Well, I mean, that's something that's never even um, entered my mind um, as far as the that sort of thing. I, I feel like it's been like a kind of a deep dive into that because it's like really opened up like me thinking about the way that I shoot and the scenarios in, in which like that arises, like I'm not necessarily sure that that, that happens, but I'm not sure that it's, it's not happening either. You know, it's, I have a shot process, but nowhere in that process do I say, man, how fast is that pin moving or anything like that? You know, you're, you're thinking about, you're thinking about mechanics, you know, shoulder up, you know, yeah. You know, where's my feet? You know, what's going on? And then. Right by. Yeah. <laughs> then like. Yeah. You, sh- you shouldn't, you shouldn't be worried. You know, when you're shooting, you shouldn't be worried about what your pin's doing really. Right. But what I'm right. talking about, like I will go out and have practice sessions to like analyze or improve my pin flow. So, mm-hmm. you know, when I'm doing that, I'm not really working on shot execution. I'm looking at my pin and I'm seeing what it's doing. Do I like my pin flow? Is there something I can do to improve my pin flow? Now, there's nothing wrong with a carbon bow. Absolutely not. It's light. What's cool about that is you can add weight to it um, in stabilization. And stabilization can, I don't know what you use, but stabilization can slow down your pin movement. So, like, if if you are getting a little more pin movement than you want, you can start experimenting. If you put, you know, put, like, a minimum, like, eight, 8, 10, 12 inch stabilizer, something like that, put a few ounces out at the end. And what that does is that slows, if you're getting a lot of this, it slows it down. It's just like holding a golf club, you know, with the heavy head out at the end and you got the handle here and you try to wiggle it. It's like, you know, it's slow. And then if you switch it around and you got the head and the handles out there, you can whip it back and forth like this. Same, same type of deal. You're getting weight out away from the bow and it can slow this it can slow this down to like this, you know, but then if you get too much weight out front, then your pin starts doing this and dropping here, dropping. 
So, and then, then you either got to back off, take a little weight off, or in my case, I use a back bar. So I start adding a little weight to the back. If I'm, if I'm getting a pin that's dropping a little bit constantly, and that seems to be my issue, you know, the majority of the time, like when I'm setting a bow up, I add a little weight in the back until my pin doesn't drop anymore. Now it's just kind of doing this really calm, still moving, but it's just a really calm flow. I got it stabilized perfectly. So it doesn't want to drop. I got enough weight out front where it's not doing this. Um, I don't got too much weight in the back where it wants to go up. You know, it, I, I tinker with that until I get that perfect kind of acceptable pin flow. And that might be overkill for a lot of hunters because a lot of, a lot of hunters are, you know, they're thinking 25 yards and in, and right. it, it probably is unnecessary. I'm not trying to get your listeners to do what I do. Like it's overkill. Um, you know, I would say, but you know, if you, if you're going to take, try to take your archery to the next level and you're looking for, Hey, you know, maybe I don't want to kill a, a, a deer at 50, but I'd like to be able to practice at 50 and I'd like to be able to hit the bullseye, you know? These are the types of things that when you start to get to those longer ranges, 50, 60, 80, 100, like at the total archery challenge, these are the things that make all the difference in the world. And that's why, like, you know, this buck here in my, in my antelope, you know, I, I was able to make a longer shot because I have a setup that's really well balanced. I'm executing a good shot. It's a setup that's really forgiving and accurate that I have a lot of confidence in. If I just took a bare bow out there, um, I mean, there's no way, you know what I mean? There's no way I'd be able to, to do some of that stuff. So it, it just depends on how far down that rabbit hole you want to go. It's definitely, uh, I mean, I know just straight up killers that don't use a stabilizer that don't shoot past 20 yards. I mean, Eberhardt's like 20, 20 and in, you know what I mean? So this is just the way I do it. And I'm not telling anyone else they should do it this way. It's just, I enjoy it, and I think that's why I go so far down that rabbit hole. And um, for me personally, I've seen an increase in performance and in success, and then in in shot opportunities because because when the conditions are right, I, I am able to reach out there a little further. Yeah, I'm the same way. I'm on the same pattern you are with that. And yeah. it's, some of our listeners are too. I mean, we just had a like a Zoom uh, meeting with some of our Patreons, and I was saying like the same exact things that we're talking about right now, like the whole thing with the shot process and letting the pin flow, and just being comfortable with it. Yep. And you know, the and confidence, like when you're shooting at 100 yards or 80 yards or 50, 60 yards, and you can consistently, you know, put it in, you know, the kill zone on a on a 3D target. Well, then when that shot comes in at 20 yards, it's like I'm not even thinking, oh, am I going to miss it or am I going to mess this shot up? It's, yeah. you pick a spot and it's there. Yeah. And, and back to Adam's setup, he does have it like a 10 inch stabilizer on it, but that's one thing when I went to put that on, I was like, holy cow, this thing is super light. Like there's, he hardly has any weight. So that's, that was, you know, I had it on the bow, but it definitely needs some adjustment. I haven't, I haven't shot that bow since he first bought it. Yeah. 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 yeah and I know, I know hunting is like, you know, bow hunting specifically is, you know, is about getting close to the animal. And I, I'm a hundred percent on board with that, but it does feel good when you, um, 
are able to practice at those longer distances. And like you said, you get more confident. It, it just, it just makes those shorter shots, um, just feel so automatic. Like you almost like you can't even mess it up. It like doesn't even come into your mind that, that you could possibly miss this where before, I mean, it was a very, <laughs> very real possibility that I was going to miss this or screw it up. But, uh, it does feel good too. Like I find, I mean, I find often, or I, I'm, I'm really comfortable in that kind of like 30 to 40 range. Um, and so what, what a lot of times what I find in my setups now is I'm, I'm setting up back a little bit from where I used to, which has given me a little more, um, a, a little, a little more forgiveness with the wind and, and the swirling. And I'm, I'm a lip, I'm out of the view. I'm not quite like in, in their face all the time. I'm not saying all the time. Um, but I, if there's an opportunity there, I find myself hunting back just a little because I do feel a little, you know, more confident, you know, with that 30, 35 yard shot. Um, so I'll get kind of out of their bubble a little bit and kind of let things materialize in front of me instead of like, pass or I would get like right in there with them, you know, 15 yards or whatever. And a lot of times, you know, thermals or, you know, get you or this doe over here that you didn't see, you know, get you as you're, as you're kind of shifting around. So, um, it, it does have some benefits there and I'm not, I'm not one to condone long shots or say people should be taking long shots, but it, it, it does open up some doors there and does give you some confidence in those like normal bow hunting ranges. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's 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 pretty awesome, you know, to have you on here uh and talk, you know, I wanted to talk more towards the listeners side of it because of the way that you are able to capitalize and and the uh, the humble nature, you know, you, you you talk about like, you know, these deer that you've killed and you know, you've been keeping a log for you know, what are we at? 22 years now. Um, and it it isn't, you know, uh, overnight success. It isn't, um, you know, Dan Infault says the fairy dust, but there isn't a product that's out there that you said, man, as soon as I bought such and such, like, this is the way that it is. And, you know, you, are involved in a lot of different things. You know, like you said, you've written articles, you're, uh, you know, uh, frequently on wired to hunt and, you know, uh, the tethered guys and, and all of that. And, you know, we, you come on here to talk with us about, you know, trying to be a little bit more efficient. And then you jump right over into the, the John nerd out about bows, but not only talk about that in, you know, setups and um, a lot of people have an agenda, you know, when they want to talk about their bows or they want to say, okay, well you need to do this or everything is absolute. And you're saying, look, look, this is why this, the archery component, why, you know, in for me kind of like kind of put everything in perspective because John tells me all this stuff all the time. Like I'm very fortunate is I have a John in my life. That's like, you know, he, he's building strings, he's building arrows, he's tuning bows, he's doing all of this stuff, you know, but it's kind of like when your mom tells you all this stuff and you're like, you know what, it's, I know, I know, I know, I'm sure you're right. Um, but then for you to come on here and then explain like, okay, this is why I'm doing it. This is why, and this is where I think that that's important. I think that's a really great, 
um, not only for myself, but for the listener as well, because uh, to be able to have somebody, you know, that we want to have on as a guest for uh, helping our listeners and, and to, you know, be more efficient to, to have a little bit uh, better success rates and then be able to tie it right back into, you know, kind of like the way that John and I play off one another is I just, you know, do whatever I want to. He's the guy that's very laser focused and, you know, uh, all of that. Uh, but I think that's probably one of the best explanations that I've ever heard um, in, in doing this and asking the questions as far as like stabilization is one of the questions that I get asked or that we get fielded all the time is about why or how or how do you pick your stabilizer or whatever. Um, and tying that right back into hunting versus the target archery side or, or things like that, um, you know, is, is pretty awesome. And I really do, uh, appreciate that whether, you know, you think it's a, a rabbit hole or, or kind of off topic or whatever, but, you know, so we've been on here for two hours now and, uh, I don't want to keep you too much longer. Um, you know, where can people follow along with whatever you're doing or kind of your stuff? You talked about a little bit of filming, you know, you do the wire to hunt stuff. You, you're with tethered and, and those guys. So, you know, if people want have questions or they, they're like, man, I really like this guy. How can, how can we follow along with uh, all the things that you're doing? Yeah. I, so I think that's kind of a misconception. Like I don't, uh, I don't really put out like any content. I'm not uh, selling anything. I'm not, even trying to like self promote at all. Um, I do, I have an Instagram, Instagram page. If you want to follow it, that's fine. I don't post on it much. Um, I'll post some hunting stuff, uh, once in a while, you'll probably see some stuff with me and my daughter on there. Um, but that's bow hunting dad, uh, on Instagram. Uh, Facebook is just for my, uh, family. So I don't try to find me on there. Um, and then don't expect too much. <laughs> you know, I'm uh, not trying to, uh, become famous or, or even really try to like, uh, make it in the hunting industry. Like I'm, I'm, if, if I'm known for anything, it's, I'm known as just the regular guy that works two jobs that has a family that has limited time to hunt, but still, um, kind of prioritizes it enough to, um, get out there and, and have some success. And, and I've done it, uh, in a lot of different States, you know, I've hunted as far West as Colorado and all the way to Maryland and pretty much everything in between. So, um, I do have quite a bit of experience. I love talking hunting. I do get a lot of messages. So like, um, I, I'll definitely reach back out, but it might be a while if, if, if someone did message me, but, uh, that's about it, man. I did. I'm not really, uh, I wish I could say wait for my video to drop or something, but there's none coming. So, <laughs> uh, well, I, I really appreciate that. And, and, and that being said, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk with us and, and kind of basically yeah. talk directly to the listeners because, um, like you said, you know, that every man, that humble, that, you know, not trying to sell anything, um, but having the success is, is, you know, there's a, we've said it on here, no matter who we talk to, but there's a lot of guys out there that you don't know their names, that they're, you know, incredible hunters that don't want, you know, any recognition or anything. And, um, those are the ones that we could all learn a lot from. Um, yeah, so for sure. That was a real quick, that was, 
that was me forever. Like I think I told you before we started recording, Kenyon, uh, Mark Kenyon at Wired to Hunt asked me to go on his podcast for, it was like two and a half years before I said yes. I kept telling him no. I didn't feel comfortable with it. I wasn't trying to be secretive or anything. It's just, it's just, it's not my, uh, it's not my way really to sit there and, and talk uh, about myself. Um, but then he, he finally, he was persistent and uh, he said, don't think of it as talking about yourself. Think of it as you're just talking about hunting with me, your buddy. And uh, you know, it might help people out there. And, and that, I guess that's what kind of hooked me because there were people that helped me. And um, I'm not saying I'm the greatest teacher or I know everything. I absolutely do not. I make a ton of mistakes every year, but um, you know, there were people out there that, that took the time to, to give me some advice and some direction, you know, when, when I sought it out. So I guess that was my way to kind of do that a little bit back. Um, and now I've, I've been on a few now and uh, so I'm a little more comfortable with it now, but I appreciate you guys having me. No problem, man. Uh, yeah. Honestly, hopefully we'll get to uh, meet up again in person someday when this is all over. But uh, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, we look forward to that. But I think that's all we got for this evening. So I really appreciate it, Andy. All right. Awesome. Thanks, guys.